Genesis chapter 16. And while you're doing that, uh, let's just invite God to open his word to us and to make it fresh to us and speak to us livingly today. Lord, uh, we do approach your word as uh, your humble servants. Uh, It's our desire to learn lessons for our life that would bring glory to you. And so we pray, God, that you would be our teacher today and that you would instruct us vividly and that we would learn the lessons that you had to give us and learn them well. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 16, a booklet I once read was uh, entitled, Getting More Out of Life, The Difference Between Living and Merely Existing, and the difference it tried to explain uh, actually uh, was uh, comprised of about four things, at least these four things. Number one, it said, those who just exist allow themselves to get boxed in, while those who live, I mean really live, it was saying, experience regular self-renewal. And so uh, one of the quotes from the book would say, As years go by, most of us progressively narrow in the scope of our lives. And it says that this is kind of an imprisonment. Uh, In order to really live, we must constantly widen our horizons. That's the piece of advice. The second uh, uh, way to get the most out of our life, according to this little booklet, booklet, says that those who just exist are passive people. While those who really live, who truly live, learn to be enthusiastic. Play it cool is one of the quotes. Play it cool and you may freeze. Coolness is an, is an evasion of life. Being cool isn't being at all. Play it hot and even if you get burned, you'll at least get some warmth to shed over the earth. The third piece of advice this little booklet gave was that those who just exist take themselves and their problems far too seriously. Those who really live, I mean who really have learned to live, the booklet says, learn to laugh at themselves. The importance of being able to laugh at oneself uh, was affirmed by a quote from a psychologist in this little booklet. The psychologist says, I've seldom been called on to help a person who had a sense of the ridiculous and I've never had to treat anyone who had learned to laugh at themselves. And then the fourth piece of advice in this little booklet was, those who just exist never really learn to trust others. Those who live, who really live, who have learned how to live, have the courage to trust somebody else. The surest way of enriching our own lives, the booklet said, is by increasing our capacity to expect the best of others. Now, I don't know about you. I I don't put much stock in little self-help booklets. I just read them basically for sermon illustrations. But as I was reading this, as I was reading this booklet, I had one of those uh, Jethro moments. You remember who Jethro is in the Old Testament? He's the father-in-law of Moses. Now, get this. Moses was, you know, the stream of revelation. When Moses spoke, we got things like the law. When Moses spoke, you got commandments. When Moses spoke, you got instructions for the temple. When Moses spoke, you better listen up. Well, what does Moses do when his father-in-law, this man who's not the stream of revelation, when he comes along, what do you do? Well, we all know what you do, don't we, men? When your father-in-law speaks, you listen. And in listening to Jethro, Moses learned some really interesting things from the sphere of general or natural revelation. Outside the flow of biblical teaching, 
But in natural revelation, well, as I was reading this through, these four points here, I thought to myself, ah, you know, there's something significant going on. Maybe we need to listen up. And sure enough, it kind of gave me an insight into how best to approach Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 17. Because see, these chapters, they really do kind of go together. And we're going to be talking about these two chapters over the next couple of weeks. Genesis 16, I would like to suggest to you, tells how God's people get themselves into trouble. That's the theme of Genesis 16. The theme of Genesis 17 next week tells how God gets them out. So the two chapters really do go together. Well, our focus today is on Genesis 16. I'm calling it, as you saw from the title early on, Middle Muddle. Uh, Or, How to Really Blow It. Or, Three tried and true methods for getting less out of our spiritual lives. And so we're going to enter through sort of the back door. We're going to talk about some negative stuff to learn some positive lessons. And so negative piece of advice, number one, how to get less out of your spiritual life. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1, 2, and 3. Would you read those verses with me, please? The verse says, verse 1, Now Sarai... Uh, You're going to see, I'm going to get confused here between Sarai and Sarah. Later, Sarah's name is going to be changed, as is Abram's name. So I may slip back and forth. But at this point, she's still called Sarai. There's a reason for that. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife. And there's a reason for his name change later. We'll learn more about that next week. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my my maidservant, and perhaps I can build a family up through her. So Abram agreed to do what Sarai said. So Abram had been living in the land of Canaan ten years. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife, and he slept with her. And she conceived. Now, I think the first piece of advice that I would pull from this passage, and we're going to have to get behind what's going on here to look at Sarai, Sarah's motivation, but I think the first piece of negative advice I would say getting less out of life is just simply this be afraid. Be afraid. Don't trust God or anyone else. When things go wrong in your life, take matters into your own hands even if you haven't consulted God in the first place. Now, last week we saw how uh, God dealt with Abraham's fear. Pastor Rick took us through that. But this week I want us to show to see that Sarai, Sarah, had some fears of her own, and they got her into trouble and everybody else around her into trouble as well. So let's take a look at, first of all, Sarah's fear, starting in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And I have to tell you now, guys, I've been, uh, I've been reading not just little self-help booklets, but my wife's got some books at home. And she's got this one book at home entitled Lost Women of the Bible. Uh, it's written by uh, Carolyn Custis James. And it's really a pretty good book. I don't know if you've read that, ladies, but if you have, pass it on to your husband. It's a wonderful little book. Helped me to get inside the feminine mind. (laughs) 
James has this to say about the motivation that was behind Sarai's action here, or Sarah's action. She notes three particular passages, and I just want to take a look at those and show you some things that you may or may not have seen that helps us to understand a little bit the motivation of Sarah in this particular chapter. Back in chapter 11, we're going to come back to 16, but back in chapter 11, verse 27, where we first meet Sarah... One of the things that we need to note about her is her name, Sarai, which is going to be changed. Sarai, I'd like to suggest to you, could possibly be translated little princess. You know, your daughter's born. She's special to you. You want to give her a special name. And so Sarai, when she first enters the world, is given this wonderful name, little princess. But like the Near Eastern world today, we see this on the news on a regular basis, women in Sarah's day didn't really have much of a standing. It was a male-dominated world. And so Sarah's world was dominated by these three older brothers, uh, dominated by uh, her relationship with her father. And then as she gets married, she moves from being Sarai, Terah, her father's little princess to simply the wife of Abram. You can see this down in, oh, let's say, verse 29 of chapter 11. Abram and Nahor both married. The name now of Abram's wife was Sarai, and then it goes on to give the name of uh, Nahor's wife. The point there is that Sarai now has moved from being his father's little daughter to Abram's wife. But that's not the end of the story. If you take another little peek down in verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. And you've got to ask yourself, why was that said twice? Isn't it enough to say she's barren? Do you have to say she's barren and she has no children? Wasn't once enough? Because in this particular culture, you were either somebody's daughter somebody's wife or somebody's mother. Sarah had moved from being her father's little special angel, just being a wife of Abram, and now a wife who's barren. And that sort of registered a point in Sarah's mind. Something was going wrong here. Now, the next thing that Curtis James points out is that Carolyn James points out, you see in chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, where we have this marvelous, it's called the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. God makes wonderful promises to this man, Abraham, to whom Sarah is married. He says, if you'll leave your country, Ur of the Chaldees, and if you'll come and follow me, and I'll show you a special land. He says, now look at verse 2. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. What's missing there, ladies? Where is Sarah in this promise? She's now moved from being the little princess. She's moved just to being a man's wife. She's barren. That's said twice. And does she have a place in the plan? Nothing is said. Now, next week we'll see that she is included in the plan... But up to this point, she is not included in the plan. The nagging uncertainties that run through the length of the story first rear their ugly heads here, Carolyn uh, James says. Was there a place in God's plan for Sarah? Or did he care only for Abram? Was there a blessing for Sarah too? 
The psalmist once lamented, If you are silent, I might as well give up and die. And one can easily imagine that is how Sarah must have begun to feel. She's not named. Isn't she important in God's program? And then you move down to chapter 12 and you look at verse 14 and you remember there's a famine in the land. And uh, in order to protect his own skin, Abraham says, Now, Sarah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell a partial truth. He'd actually married his semi-sister. It was Terah. Terah was his father. Terah was Sarah's father. But they were by two different mothers, the polygamy in the Old Testament. Uh, And so Sarah and Abraham really were related as well as being husband and wife. He says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. So Pharaoh has to negotiate with me. And Pharaoh didn't end up negotiating. And so Sarah got compromised and perhaps even abused. We don't know. The story may not go quite that far. But Sarah certainly compromised. Now the last last thing that... uh, um, Carol and James notices that what uh, Sarah proposes here in offering in chapter 16 to have uh, you know her handmaiden, who, by the way, the family may have acquired in this bad, ill-advised trip to Egypt. Where else would they have gotten an Egyptian handmaiden? Bring the handmaiden back. Now in chapter 16, it's 10 years later or so. Uh, Sarah is still barren, and she's proposing this thing. And now I'll show you this uh, little quote uh, from uh, this is from sort of the law books of Abram's day. It comes from a thing called the Nuzi Tablets, which is an ancient Near Eastern culture right around the time Abraham was alive. I'm not sure I can pronounce that first word correctly, but I think it's if Galim Ninu, that is the bride, fails to bear children, she shall get for Shanima that is, the bridegroom or the husband, a woman from the Lulu country. And the Lulu country, that's where they got really good slave girls. So send off to get a slave girl as a wife. In other words, what Sarah is doing here is fitting the culture that she's in. Culture has always had sort of a way of, uh, you know, sort of bending the rules and the laws. And uh, once this child was born, according to the Newsy tablets, uh, the child will actually belong to Sarah. She'll have. So, you know, what she's suggesting here wasn't immoral in the culture of the day. It wasn't outside of the laws of the day. It was almost like the rule of kinsman redeemer that we study about in the book of Ruth, where if a husband dies and he doesn't have children, then the other, the husband, uh, uh, the brother is supposed to take up uh, the wife and raise children. It's kind of along that way. Sarah is actually taking some initiative here. She has these fears. She acts on these fears by taking initiative, acting in the culture of her day. But I think along with those fears, Sarah also shows us that she has some blind spots. Sarah, it seems, um, didn't consider God's original plan. Now, our culture often tells us that a thing is okay, that we can do something. Our culture's laws are sort of, you know, well, all right, we understand that people will be human, and humans are human, and they make mistakes, and so we actually pass laws to do that. So Sarah really should not have been driven by the laws of the day. Even what she did wasn't wrong by the law. But in the Old Testament, there were two passages that Sarah should have known about. Uh, They may not have been written in a Bible. She may not have carried a Bible just exactly like ours. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, 
the Old Testament talks about Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, God had said there will be uh, one man and one woman, and they will be one flesh. Everywhere you see marriage in the Bible that's blessed, you always see the one man, one woman relationship. You do see polygamy in the Old Testament, but every time you see polygamy happen, the Bible doesn't just necessarily stand there and say, this is wrong, you shouldn't have done this. But what it does do is to open the door and show us behind the scenes and show us how this always goes wrong. And there's not a polygamous marriage in the Bible that works out. In fact, this arrangement that Sarah suggests is not going to work out either. If Sarah had just taken a look at the Word and put two and two together with all of her internal motivations and fears, I think she could have drawn a better conclusion and included herself in part of God's plan. And then there's that other verse we've been studying, one of the ABFs that I've taught uh, uh, several weeks ago, about Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a promise that was made to a woman that she would bear the seed that was eventually going to become the Messiah. Now, Sarah would have known that verse. She would have known Genesis 3.15. And putting two and two together, if Sarah had just thought very carefully about what God was saying, and I'll grant you that sometimes you do have to piece the Word together. It's not always right there in your face. But I really believe if she could have seen behind her fears, and she could have seen through her culture, and she could have put the Word together, I think Sarah could have come up with a better solution. Let me show you... uh, a possible alternative to what Sarah had done. I'm going to read you a passage. Let's just move on through this one. Let me read you a passage. One more, please. Okay, I'm skipping a bit here, aren't I? The Sarah's how. I want to read you a passage that kind of shows what we're talking about when we talk about what Sarah was doing here. This is from the life of David. David said, I have sinned. This is after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet replied, The Lord has taken away your sin, but the son born of your sin, he's going to die. And after Nathan had gone home, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and he went into his house and he spent the nights lying on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, sure enough, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, wow, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How now can we tell him that his child is actually dead? How may he, he may do something desperate? Well, David noticed that his servants were whispering. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. Well, then David did this strange thing. He washed, he put on lotions, he changed his clothes, he went into the house and the Lord, and he worshiped. And then he went to his own house, and he ate. And his servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, yet you get up and eat. And he answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll not go to him, but he will return to me. Did you know that story was in the Bible? That's a really, really interesting story. Now let me tell you how another Sarah, a modern day Sarah, learned from this story 
and broke through her own fears as she applied it to her life. The story is told by a pastor. His name is Ben Hayden. He was one-time pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He tells uh, this story that he had uh, just finished conducting a service in the jail in a city. And as he was leaving, uh, a woman reached out to him and grabbed his arm and said, Ben, I did it. This morning, I accepted Jesus Christ into my heart. My name is Sam, she said. Well, a week later, uh, a guard called Pastor Hayden and he said, Are you the guy that was down here at the jail last week? And Hayden says, Yeah. He says, well, there's a girl here, a girl named Sam, and she wants to see you. So Hayden made his way to the prison, and he was escorted into this little two-by-two, you know, in this little room with a two-by-two table with two chairs. And he sat down, and Sam was brought in and sat across from him, and she just gently started weeping, and the tears were falling on the chair. And she said, Ben, I'm divorced. But I have two sons. I have one who's 18, and I have one who's 16, and my 18-year-old son was just killed in an automobile accident, and they won't let me out to go to the funeral. So Ben said to her, well, did your boy know Christ? And Sam said, yeah, they, they live with my mother, and she's big on that kind of thing. You know, She made sure that the, the boys came to know Jesus when they were little, and so, yeah, he does. So then Ben said, well, then we'll just have a service for your son right here. And they did, right there in the jail. Well, six months later, Sam was released from jail. And it wasn't long after that that Ben Hayden got another phone call. Ben, this is Sam, she said. The Lord's got my other boy. Sam, Ben Hayden said, I'll be right out. Well, he arrived quickly, and he sat there for a while, and again he watched her as she had fear and tears and anxiousness and sadness in her heart. And finally she looked up, and uh, then Ben Hedden said, Sam, I want to read you something from the Bible. He says, do you know anything about the David of the Bible? And she says, a little, not much. She's a new believer, you know. Well, he said, David is a king, and he had a son just like you, and I want you to read what happened. And he read this passage to her from Second Samuel chapter, 13, chapter 12, verses 13 through 23. And Sam says, is that in the Bible? You mean that's there? And Ben Hayden said, yeah, it is. And she said, let me see that. And she took that passage, and she began to read it through, and she began to think it over, and... And Hayden was just real quiet, and then all of a sudden he said to her, Sam, it's not wrong for you to feel sad, but I don't want you to have any anxiousness or fear or discouragement about your son. The Lord now has your two sons, and he's good for his word. Can you believe that? She said she could, and the sadness and the questions remained, as they do, don't they? But the fear and the anxiety disappeared. I'd like to suggest to you that that was the alternative for Sarah. I think Sarah had every right to be fearful. I think she was in a male-dominated world. But I think if Sarah could have just taken pieces of God's Word and put those together in just the right way, I think she could have seen through to a better solution. I think 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 is relevant here. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power 
and of love and a sound mind. So my point is, if you want to get less out of life, be afraid. Don't trust God. Don't look into his word. Don't believe what he has to say. Give in to your fears. Take matters into your own hands. That's what Sarah, I think, was doing here. Now let's look at a second uh, passage, starting at chapter 16, verse 4, and see what Abraham now does with the suggestion. Verse 4 says, He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. She says this to her husband. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abraham says, Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. And so Sarah mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. I'd like to suggest negatively, coming at this thing again, that Abraham's mistake was, instead of stepping up and doing what... What's the expression? Man up. Instead of stepping up, what Abraham actually did, and you can see it all the way through this passage, is he was disengaged. He was passive. He backed away from the family. He backed away from his responsibilities. He backed away from, you know, the thing that he should have done. And he allowed himself, as a result, to get boxed in. Now, I have to tell you, after the chapters that just preceded chapter 16, I wasn't expecting that from Abraham. I was expecting that he had really come along and he had learned a lot of good things and he had learned a lot of neat things and he was walking really close to God. Derek Kidner, one of the commentators uh, on Genesis, says this. He says, it's ironical that after the heights attained in the last two chapters, Abraham should cave in to domestic pressure, pliant under his wife's planning and scolding, and quick to wash his hands of the outcome. Now, fellas, I'm not saying don't listen to your wives. Uh, you know, I think there's some real wisdom in that. But I'm saying that whether it's my wife or anybody else, if they're telling me to do some things that are wrong, it's wrong for me to disengage from that and just to wash my hands of it and to move in another direction. So what's the explanation? Abraham coming off of this high point. What's the explanation? I'd like to suggest something to you. I want to show you a passage from 1 John in the New Testament. 1 John uh, describes three groups of people. I, I think it describes three phases in the Christian life. John says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, the first phase of the Christian life is the phase that we could be called children. We're, we're brand new Christians. We're like Sam in the earlier story. Our focus is on, hey, I'm a Christian. My sins have been forgiven on account of his name. We've all met those. We've all been there, haven't we? That's the first phase of the Christian life. I don't think that phase should ever go away, but I think we should move to deeper levels with Jesus than just to talk about our salvation. And so, there's this second phase of the Christian life. John says, I write to you fathers. Now, this is the mature phase. So, phase one, we're going to skip phase two for a second. We're going to move to phase three here. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. So, if a baby Christian thinks primarily about their salvation and the forgiveness of their sins, we do reach a stage in our lives where we start to think about eternal things and the depths of God, and we really just want to probe deeper, and that's when we become 
fathers in the faith, mature spiritual Christians. In between those two, there's this third phase. John says, I write to you young men. We could put young men slash women. It's just talking about the middle phase. I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Overcoming. So between being a child of the faith and the father of a faith, really living deeply with the Lord, there's this whole middle period that could be called the overcoming or the growing or the young men or the battle stage. I'd like to suggest to you that that's where Abram is in this story. If you look back at the story, uh, the first three chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11 is about Abram being rescued from Ur, saved, redeemed from Ur. Ur was a place, as Pastor Jason mentioned several weeks ago, of idolatry. You could almost say the devil. Abram was rescued from idolatry, the devil. In chapter 12, Abraham is rescued from uh, the flesh. He's fleeing from a famine. He comes up with fleshly decisions. He puts his wife at risk. He's doing dumb things. Abraham now is being rescued from Egypt, the flesh. And then in chapter 14 and 15, there's this coalition of nations that attack his nephew. And Abraham goes in and does battle with them. And Abraham has certain fears as a result of that. He has a fear of retaliation. I think you could call that the world system. He kind of felt that the world was ganged up against him. Abraham had been rescued in his childhood stage from the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's, I think, the first part of Abram's life. Now, in chapter 21, through the end of the story, that takes up uh, the last decades of Abram's life, during that, Abram reaches the peak of maturity. And the peak of the peak is when he's asked to offer his son on Mount Moriah. We haven't talked about that yet. But when he goes up to Mount Moriah, he experiences what the Jewish people call the Akita, the binding of his son. And Abraham is tested whether or not he will offer his son. There's a lot of strange things going on in that testing. But the essence of it all is summarized in, oh, let's see, chapter 22, verse 12, where God says, Now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. Now, do you get the point? There's going to come a time in history when our Father is going to give His Son for our sins, Abraham has moved from being a child, rescue, 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 now to enter into the deep things of what does it mean? What would it, what did, what would it mean for the Father to give His only Son for our sins, to begin to know the Father? That's the first stage second stage. But the stage that we find Abram in, in chapter 16, when he's capitulating, when he's giving in to his wife, it's that struggle stage. It's that overcoming stage. He's learning some things. We're going to see this in the weeks to come, but he's going to overcome character flaws. Remember how he lied about Sarah in chapter 12? Guess what? He's going to do it again in chapter 20. I don't know about you, but the sins I committed in the past... They tend to follow me. And God tries to get at those and to remove them. That's one of the overcoming things. In chapter 18, so far we haven't seen Abraham at prayer. 
But in chapter 18, both Sarah and Lot are going to be brought into crisis. And we begin to see Abraham really praying, really getting down with God and praying. That's part of the overcoming stage. But in chapter 16, we find something I think that's actually kind of unique. We find Abraham getting into trouble. He's getting himself into difficulty, uh, overcoming failure. Now, question, wouldn't you think that to learn to overcome a failure, you have to experience one? And if Abraham's going to learn how to overcome some failures... He's going to have to experience failure. And God steps back, as it were, and allows him to fail. So he can allow him to overcome it. I hope that didn't sound heresy-like to you. Let me show you another thing up here. This is from one of my favorite places. I like to go study this thing. Uh, This is old Puritan language, so bear with me. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's interesting. It says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own heart. Do you see what that said? Sometimes God backs away and allows me to do a stupid thing. Now, why would God do that? Well, the Westminster Confession says, as they thought through it, there are several reasons. It says, to chasten them for their former sins. Now, has Abraham committed some sins so far? Yeah, in fact, Hagar may even have been the result of one of Abram's sins that even put that temptation there. So to chasten them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their heart. Is Abraham going to learn some things about his own corruption and deceitfulness here? Yeah, I think he is. Uh, That they may be humbled. Is Abraham going to be humbled as a result of this story? Yeah, I think he is. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself? Is Abraham going to learn that? Yeah, I think he is. And then uh, make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin? Is Abraham going to learn that because of this failure? Yes, I think he is. And I love this last phrase here, being good Puritans like they are. It said, in case this didn't exhaust the list, and for sundry other just and holy ends. Now I don't know what those are. But do you get the point? Abraham has gone through his first phase of life. He hasn't entered his third phase of life, but he's learning to be an overcomer. And one of the things he's going to have to learn to overcome is his failures and his mistakes. And sometimes God steps back and lets us do those kinds of things so that we too will be an overcomer. That's my suggestion to you. I think that's what's going on in this particular passage. I think the point is that if you want to get less out of life, be engaged, become passive, allow yourself to box in, God sooner or later is going to have to bring you through that kind of thinking. Now, real quickly, let's just take a look at Hagar. Because, see, Hagar is a victim here of a way. Uh, In chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, uh, we're told the reason why Hagar was running away. It's the same kind of thing I often do. It says, Abraham slept with Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on here, but it's sort of like, I can have a baby, you can't. That's kind of the attitude, whether she said it just that way or not. 
And of course, with all Sarah's fears and with all Sarah's problems, that was tough for Sarah. And she was human just like the rest of us. And she began to abuse her servant. And her servant, Hagar, ran away. And wouldn't you? Wouldn't you try to escape? Let me just park that thought with you for a minute. So Hagar was running because she had fouled her own nest and she was unable to live there any longer. So what does God do in chapter 16? Well, real quickly, we can go through this really quickly. In chapter 16, God handles this. We first of all find him being interested in her. It says the angel of the Lord. That's a unique character in the Old Testament. This sort of a, a manifestation of God in the Old Testament in uh, in a form, in a physical form. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring. It's the word found that's important. It really means he searched for her. He looked for her. He was after her. She was trying to escape. She was running away. But God went looking. If he pulls back, it's not because he's trying to leave us on our own. He's going to come and get us. He's going to come and find us when the time is ripe. And that's exactly what he did with Hagar. And then verses 8 and 9, he says something really interesting to Hagar. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarah, what have you, where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, knowing you can't lie to the Lord, I was running away from my mistress. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, go back. Face into the wind. Submit yourself. I'm guessing that's the last thing she wanted to hear. You know, I've learned in my own life, have you learned this in your life yet, that you can't run from your fouled nest because you're the one that fouled it. And wherever you go, guess what? You take you with you. The mistakes you make here, you're going to make there. And if you're trying to run from your mistakes here, you're going to sooner or later find yourself running from the same mistakes there. And God knows that sometimes in order for us to grow, He's got to send us right back to face the same kinds of mistakes we were making. It's tough, but that's what God is doing with Hagar in this situation. He's telling her to face into the wind. Now, verse 10 He gives her a promise. He says, I will so increase your descendants that they too will become numerous. One commentator suggested that in a way, Hagar becomes a sort of mini Abraham. Abraham's going to have 12 descendants. Guess what? Hagar has 12 descendants. Uh, They're going to be kings uh, that are are descendants of uh, Abraham. They're going to be kings that are descended from Hagar's line. That's really all she needed to know. She just needed to know there was a place for her if she obeyed God. And then in verse 11, uh, there's a promise actually that's given to Hagar. The angel Lord said to her, You are now a child, and you will have a son, and you will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be like a wild donkey of a man. His hand will stand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward his brothers. And you say, wow, what kind of promise is that? Two things. Number one, A slave girl wants to hear that her son is not going to be anybody's servant, doesn't she? God is saying, you know, your son's going to grow up and he's not going to have to live the kind of life you lived. He's not going to be a slave. 
He's not going to have to face anybody else that tells him what to do, what not to do. I'm going to make him the kind of a person that is actually an independent individual. And then do you see that word, his hand will be against everyone? In the Hebrew text, that's really uh, an invitation. It can either be translated one way, against, or it can be translated, this sounds unusual, but another way, toward or to. In other words, the choice is, is Ishmael's. Ishmael can be his own man, and he can either be his own man against other people, or he can be his own man to or toward other people. The invitation is there as to what Ishmael will do with it. Ishmael, I think, and many of his descendants, as you know today from just watching the news, the descendants of Ishmael are modern-day Arabs, have oftentimes chosen to take the against part rather than the two-part invitation. So, you want to get less out of life? Be wronged. Run away. Well, an old proverb says, life is like a coin. We can only spend it one way, but we can spend it any way we want. I think that's the question that Genesis chapter 16 is setting before us. We can summarize it like this, I think. The way God grows us is by putting us in places where we have to trust his word, like he did with Sarah. Will we do that? Or will we avoid growing by giving in to our fears? The way God grows us is by asking us to overcome like Abraham. Will we do that? Or will we withdraw and become passive and allow ourselves to get boxed in like Abraham did in this passage? The way God wants to grow us is by challenging us to step into the issue, to face into the wind like Hagar. Will we do that? Or or will we choose to see ourselves as helpless victims boxed in There's no escape. I've got to run. As the old proverb says, we can spend our life any way we want, but we can spend it only once. Well, this morning we talked about God's people getting themselves into trouble, and I think negatively we learned some positive lessons. Next week let's talk a little bit about some of the ways God helps us to get out. We have, uh, I was expecting the choir to be here, but we have a couple of things going on this morning. We're going to take an exit offering. And uh, is Terry here? Terry Carey. Terry, would you come up and give us a report on VBS? Okay, during this past week, we ran Vacation Bible School here at the church. We had about 229 kindergarten through